0: So last week we had a break because uh, Aaron, Robinson and Saren Selecki and, and I, uh, had, we had to have a poetry night. It's kind of been repressed for a while. And it was so nice uh, receiving so many emails from many of you. And uh, we have a smaller group tonight because I think most people think I'm on retreat, uh, which is nice because we can shift back into what we've been doing. Um, So we've been studying the Yoga Sutra, which is a text written by an anonymous uh, sage named Patanjali, whoever that is, authorship unknown, probably about 2,500 years ago. Uh, At the time, this was an oral tradition, and then it was put down in Sanskrit. Um, And so... The goal has been to study the Yoga Sutra line by line, by word by word by word, until we're done. And it's only 195 sentences. So that should take us about a year, I think, if all goes well. And um, basically, uh, what we've covered so far, uh, or what we've emphasized so far, is... One of the things that's so interesting about this text, especially in the first chapter, uh, first of four chapters, is that Patanjali, uh, and this is, you know, Iron Age worldview, and he does away with the term enlightenment, which at the time was moksha. And actually, the etymology of the word moksha is very interesting. It refers to um, the last phase of an eclipse. So if you can imagine the moon in front of the sun, and as the sun and moon are moving away from one another, that last phase is called moksha. And um, one of the things that tends to happen uh, when we use the term enlightenment is that we tend to believe that um, I get to go somewhere or that I attain something or not attain something. And... um, When you do away with the term moksha, it means that there is nothing you get to. And this is kind of an interesting way to start um, laying out the meditative path, is to not ratchet up any one particular experience as being higher or lower than any other experience. And so to me, that's really what's compelling about this text. Um... And also, it can be, uh, for many people, and you could imagine this uh, 2,500 years ago, um, frustrating, because Patanjali is not offering a creation story, he's not offering a theory about life after death, he's not offering uh, you know, definitive commentary on what God is or is not, he just stays away from all of that, and returns us over and over again to our basic restlessness. The way we experience our basic sense of lack and restlessness and unsatisfaction. Is unsatisfaction a word? I don't know if it's a word, but unsatisfaction. In Sanskrit, a dukkha. And I've been thinking about this a lot in the past couple of days because. Uh, Center of Gravity didn't put on this two-day retreat. Leading-Edge Seminars did. And Leading-Edge Seminars tends to bring uh, clinicians and helping professionals. So nurses, there were a lot of doctors there today, um, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, um, And you know, one of the things you hear a lot, especially people who bill with OHIP, is that they feel they want to help people. And so they start working harder to help people. And then they start helping more people. And then their waiting list doesn't change. And then so they start working even more hours to help more people. And the waiting list doesn't change. And there's a time, I think, for people who work in these fields um, where you're there admitting people at 999 Queen Street down the road and you're admitting people and you're admitting people and the number of people who are coming don't decrease. And um, just to open to how much suffering there is, And um, then we come and we sit on a retreat. You know, for many people, it's just to take care of themselves because you can't really help. Um, You get compassion fatigue. And then we can't really help others because we're not taking care of ourselves. And um, for the clinician, especially for the therapist, there's a whole other level. Which is that therapists tend to know so much about psychology, and then have such a difficult time even sitting with their own mind. And so there's just another layer of experience, um, especially more philosophical therapists. You know, especially the ones coming out of psychoanalysis, uh, where you know we understand, for example, that the self is a social construct and a cultural, economical gendered construct we know that philosophically and yet it doesn't change anything about us and yet to actually and so and at at the outside it looks like oh buddhism is the same as western philosophy you know but then people start getting into the practice and you actually start to see how the self is just this um Uh, structure or nest made up of stories we have internalized and, and they're not just stories you internalize like from your parents or something but we're, we're always internalizing these stories from the culture and the ads on streetcars and the media and so on but yet that self is still just a construct and when we actually see that there are little moments of freedom so that's the background. I, I'd love to keep going, but I want to I want to try and get to some of the sentences that Patanjali offers. So the next section, Patanjali says, okay, there is actually a path. And I love this because, and you know, he always kind of teaches in paradox. Um, so we're on the line that starts with shrada. Um, it's a uh, oh yeah, line 20 and he says um, the path is characterized uh, by these five elements and um, the first is Shraddha, which is faith and um This might be really confusing for most of us who come from a Western Judeo-Christian sort of Abrahamic background, whether you like it or not. And we think about faith as having faith in a particular belief. Faith in a particular belief system or in an ideal. And I think one of the things that's so attractive about meditation practice for people is you can sit still and after some practice, things quiet down, and we begin to have a feeling of being connected. And, you know, we all have a different vocabulary, and we may feel different connected to different things. Um, and we can have a direct experience of how things are without committing to a belief system. Yeah? And so when Patanjali then says that the beginning of the path is faith, What's he talking about? And of course, you can't talk about faith without talking about doubt. And um, I have a few things to say about that. So the first thing to be really clear is that doubt in the yoga tradition is not like how we talk about doubt in a kind of local way where we doubt ourselves, have self-doubt, Or the kind of doubt that leads to waffling and indecision which, you know, so characterizes so many of us. Um, In a way what doubt means is doubting the person who is listening to the words that I'm speaking. So not doubting the self-created self, but actually doubting who is breathing and who's acting, and who's thinking. And um, out of that doubt comes faith in the practice. And um, I I really love this book, which really, I guess, didn't do very well, but it's one of Stephen Batchelor's first books. (laughs) And the title's great, which is The Faith to Doubt. And... um, he he writes so personally in this book about one of his first sort of mystical experiences. And so many of us, we read stories and hear stories about people having mystical experiences, and there's a kind of cliché, you know, where the person, you know, hears a bird, and they forget about themselves, and they're, you know, suddenly, you know, like, you know, in a big tub of Vaseline with the whole universe. Um, (laughs) But I I want you to listen closely to his experience. Um, And maybe I read it because it also resonates with my experience and I think with what Patanjali is talking about. I was walking through a pine forest. So he's in Korea practicing. I was walking through a pine forest, returning to my hut along a narrow path trodden into the steep slope of the hillside. I struggled forward carrying a blue plastic bucket filled with fresh water that I had just collected from a source at the upper end of the valley. I was then suddenly brought to a halt by the upsurge of an overwhelming sense of the sheer mystery of everything. It was as though I were lifted up onto the crest of a shivering wave which abruptly swelled from the ocean that was life itself. How is it that people can be unaware of this most obvious question? I asked myself. How can anyone pass their life without responding to it? This experience lasted in its full intensity for a few minutes. It was not an illumination, in which some final mystical truth became momentarily very clear, it gave me no answers, and it only revealed the massiveness of the question." Today, uh, at the end of our retreat, one of the people who's here commented on how at the front of the room one of the people participating was a teenager. And um, one of the things about teenagers is um, they are um, tossed around uh, relentlessly by questions of meaning and impermanence and what it means to live a life structured by death. And we don't really give teenagers very much space. To struggle with those questions we try our best to give them answers and the answers only really serve to repress the questions uh, Ling Chi says and some of you have heard me quote this thousands of times uh, it's one of my favorite passages in uh, Chinese Buddhism he says uh, great doubt great awakening little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. And when I read that, I remember thinking, wow! I mean, I had never come across a kind of system where doubt was actually held up as the cornerstone of the practice. Almost saying, like, what do you put your authority in? And, um... But there's something deeper than that psychologically which is, it also is saying the intensity and the depth of your doubt is actually directly related to the intensity and the depth of your awakening. And so for teenagers to be able to put together this questioning and inquiry that's natural and meditation Is really profound because they can actually explore these questions, these huge existential and important questions, from a place of quietude Um, where not having an answer is supported by the not knowing of practice. Because I know for most of you who are, a lot of you have been practicing here for a while. And I think we're past the phase of, like, trying to find the light and all that kind of bullshit, you know, and really wanting to open to how life is and how your life is. And part of that practicing can just be summed up as giving up fixed ideas about yourself and about others. And for all those clinicians who have waiting lists and people suffering and suffering, and we all know that in a consumer society where everyone is just supposed to consume and produce and consume and produce, there's no place to get off the wheel. And most of what ends up in psychotherapy is the fallout of capitalism. Because if you can't consume and produce, there's no room for you. What do you do? Where, I mean, no one's going to give you a free lunch. In India, you can get a free lunch. you know. But here, if you go to the Bank of Montreal and ask for a free lunch, no one's giving it to you. And so you end up in someone's office. And then the clinicians who are meeting these people um, have a kind of paradigm also. And yet... You know, when I was a kid, my best friend was my uncle who lived, uh, uh, we just called it Queen Street then, from when he was 15 until he died when he was 55. And um, he used to, he taught me yoga, and he used to just love questions. Question. A lover of ideas. And um, I remember thinking it was the most sane place. And, but I also, you know, later realized... You know, there is something about falling apart and these questions that you probably had as a young person showing up. And so Patanjali says that to explore doubt, um, it's the twin of faith. And usually we put faith first. You know, say you have to have faith and and then your doubt will go... But that's not true. Faith and doubt have to work together. And the next thing that is needed... Patanjali says, "This next in line is virya, which is translated as energy, uh, which I like to translate as enthusiasm. Just the right kind of energy. And if we have a lot of doubt, but we don't have any energy, you know, has anyone here ever been depressed?" Where it's like you're tortured really by these questions in some way, but they're not vivid, you know, and so there isn't energy to meet them, and they it's almost like top down, and um, so virya is the the energy to meet the question, and uh, I, I'm thinking now also I'm thinking a lot about teenagers today, but. You know, I'm thinking also just about you know how, when I was a psychotherapist I, I love saying now that I've, I'm retired but when I was a psychotherapist just when young people come young people are not coming because they feel ill they're coming because their parents are making them come and I used to see a lot of young people because I had an office in an alley and it wasn't in a medical building and so it was easier for kids to come because they didn't feel like something was wrong with them and um, I remember, you know, how the first phase of working with kids is just getting their parents to back off. And so you have to educate the parents a little bit. So that the kids can start to really explore what their questions are. You know? And then this amazing thing happens is they, when you give them space, they become energized their life suddenly has value but not value because there's an answer but value because it's okay to have the question and um, this is so so profound so doubt faith energy go together and then what's next on the list is it smurti yeah smurti which we translate now as mindfulness into English Um, But it actually means uh, to remember, it's a verb, Um, to recall. So if you write a book now with the word mindfulness in the title, it's like instant, you know, mindful golf. And like you've got, (laughs) I don't know if anyone's done that. Like the four dummies thing is done. So now it's just mindfulness something. Um, So whatever any of you are into, just add mindfulness and uh, start teaching workshops and, you know, hanging out at Hollyhock or whatever. Um, But mindfulness is a technical term. And it actually means to return to the object of meditation. So um, sound and breathing we've been working on a lot. And the nice thing about sound is it's always there. And when you live in a city, the tendency is to think, okay, I want to meditate, especially if you live in Parkdale, I want to meditate, and all that is distracting. And yet, if we use that as the object that we attend to, then it's our reactivity that we start looking at, as opposed to projecting onto the sound that it's the cause of our suffering. Other people are not the cause of your suffering. External circumstance are the cause of a lot of pain and injustice. But what our mind does with that is what we're, is what we're exploring, what we're studying. And it's amazing, for those of you that know the work of our friends who do New Leaf Yoga, uh, working in prisons is just how many people in prisons have experiences of freedom that they've never felt before. So you can talk about, you know, all the kinds of violence of being in a prison, and if you've ever been in prison, you know it's so loud. And yet, you use sound as meditation, and these people experience Freedom. Freedom that's not dependent on conditions. So it's not how we usually think of freedom as freedom from, but freedom that's not dependent on on something. Parkdale. And then you opened Parkdale, because this is what's here. And you can do this in this model. Because if you set out and say the goal of the practice is to transcend your body and transcend Parkdale, then Parkdale has no value, and then you have a weak ethical project. And that is a kind of meditation practice that promotes passivity and is not helpful now when the lineups are so long. So we're practicing for others. And when people are caught in their suffering and they can't work with the view that they're clinging to, then they just perpetuate violence and unconsciousness. And uh, so it's natural that there's a point in your life where you stop. And you see that all your reading and your shopping and uh, whatever it is you do, and I know what most of you do in here, Um, is helpful to a point and then there are layers of experience you can't get to with thinking and that takes care of the rest but if the goal of practice is to arrive here and not somewhere else then you have a model that's promoting human value and then you can talk about meditation as a kind of ethical practice. And um, you can't do that if you're trying to get out of here. And that's easy for me to say. I can say, don't try and get out of here. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't believe in that, that stuff or whatever. But when pain arises, you you try to get out of there. And so the heart of this practice is really being able to notice when your addiction has got you, when the symptoms of your anger and your aversion and your pain have got hold of you, um, that that is a momentary experience that is transient, it's evanescent, it's fleeting. And when you fixate on your pain and you can't open when the pain starts showing up then you create permanence around the pain and then your body screams at you and this is true of your relationships too when you take other people and you box them in they start screaming at you And other cultures will do this to nation-states. I remember teaching a couple of years ago in Paris and going out in Paris to visit the suburbs. And you see how the uh, African populations that are newly immigrated to France are treated by the French government. And they are screaming at the government. this is what happens also intrapsychically, That when there are parts of us that we can't accept and can't allow and can't make space for and we all have this they start, it starts yelling at us. And the yelling is the same as the teenager who ends up in the therapist's office who needs help. Is Something is yelling at him or her. And you can call it a disorder you can call it whatever you want But it needs attention. The suburbs of Paris need attention. More than all the fancy doorknobs and railings and beautiful architecture. Those people need attention. And they're calling out. There's a natural movement in the ecosystem. And so likewise in your experience. That... um, as we start to practice, certain parts of our cells are going to call out and scream at you. And some people quit meditation because, they just, you know, it's just too much pain. Um, and then there's a point where there's a threshold. And it usually happens, I think, a lot on retreat where you're sitting and sitting and sitting and then you realize you have to give up And the only thing you can really give up is your viewpoint. And then the pain shifts. And it's so profound to actually see that. How much of our mental energy kind of holds us in that yelling match? And usually that's not what happens when we're not meditating. When we're not meditating, you feel pain, and three seconds later, you're eating. (laughs) Right? you eat your pain, you shop your pain you, you fuck your pain You whatever you do and um, how to open it open to it and then to see how it's impermanent faith, doubt energy, mindfulness and then we get what's next, samadhi or pragna samadhi so, adi is one. Sum is the same as the English word com, so like community. Uh, sum means, oh, it's where you get the English word sum, uh, which means to come together. S U M. So, samadhi is the coming together as one. So, that's when the subject and the object collapse into each other. So uh, an example of this is um, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. Some some pain in the lower back, coming back to the breath, some pain in the lower back, trying to get... And the more you start pushing away from that pain, the more you start feeling like a self. And the more the pain becomes objectified. And, And yet, we can also soften. Pain breathing, pain is here, breathing, pain, breathing. And then there comes a time where the pain and the breathing happen together and there's no separation. And you you kind of become pain. And then the pain actually often settles, but sometimes it doesn't. But there's no longer a subject trying to get out of the pain. You see? Like... Some of you know this, uh, you hear that over and over again, but you can't have an object without a self, without a subject. And the only reason why the subject creates an object is to be a subject. Strangest thing about, I don't know what evolution is, but somehow whatever evolution is, it's created this weird thing where um, the, 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 the subject is obsessed with uh, ma- making objects To keep making a subject, right? I I like the example of war because war is so obvious. You know, if if Afghanistan is the enemy, then that makes us feel good because then we know who we are, right? And how much of national identity gets uh, gets atomized when you have an enemy. That's why soldiers, when they first go to war, often have, feel like there's so much meaning in their life. Right? Because it, it feels so certain. And then you talk to them after, and it's not so simple. And this is the subject-object. And you can see this at this more subtle internal psychological level where you split off parts of yourself, subject-object. Object. And in that gap, you get restlessness, anxiety, and suffering. And samadhi is when, if you keep practicing, this starts happening more and more. Subject falls away. You forget about yourself. And then the last is prajna, which we talked so much about last year because we read The Prajna Sutra, the the, uh, Wisdom Sutra, the Heart Sutra. Um, Prajna is usually translated... How does he translate it here? As wisdom. So just to remember again, because we spent a lot of time on this last year, but Dhyna, Dhyna, Prajna. Dhyna is where we then get the English. The J-N-A, the J moves into the N, kind of like onion, so pragna and then the j goes silent and then in greek becomes a g so like gnosis and then in english becomes a k and then goes silent again so knowledge and pra means before so pragna means knowing before knowing knowing before knowing For those of you who make art, for those of you who write, who paint, who make films, um, who dance, um, or who have good relationships where you don't finish other people's sentences, um, this is what happens. You know before you know. Somebody falls in front of you and you grab them. Who grabbed them? Well, nobody. When you see someone falling, you think, I'm going to be on the front page of the Toronto Star. (laughs) That plane that took off last year uh, in New York and flew into uh, um, Birds, and the engines cut off, both of them, and then the pilot landed in the Hudson River? I mean, do you know the Hudson River? It's busy. And the pilot landed a full plane, one of those big Airbus buses, in the water, perfectly, no injuries. And you know, from the time they took off to the time it was totally finished, was two minutes. So, there must have been some pragna there. When you're in the flow, there's thinking, but there's not a kind of self-reference happening. There's no self-image created. We forget about ourselves. Somebody asked it to yesterday, you know, what's the goal of this practice? And the goal of this practice is... Um, I like to think of it as love. And it's the love that shows up when you forget about yourself and can serve. As one of my teachers, Richard Freeman, likes to say, to become a servant of a servant. So what really upsets us when strong symptoms arise is not the pain it's the feeling that this is not going to end and it's opening to the feeling beneath that concept that is the heart of the mindfulness practice and of wisdom and this is what we're doing sitting around, watching our breath it's not so exciting, you know. It's way more exciting buying new appliances mm-hmm. and like getting a car or something. Okay, so that's a sketch of this section. We'll go into it a little more detail next week and tie it into what happens after. Um, are there any questions or comments or anything anybody wants to say? Yeah. I, I, when the symptom arise, I don't know if it's the same or not, but for me more than that it's not going to end, Is more that I can control it. I don't know yeah. if for you this is the same. Uh-huh. Uh, it's yeah. not that I believe that it's not going to end, I believe more that of what upset me is not the pain that like I cannot control it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you know, like we live indoors and uh, we live with computers, and you know, when you go to the tap and you turn it on, water comes out. And when you travel a little bit, there are a lot of countries where that doesn't all happen so easily. And we live with this kind of uh, illusion that our lives are under control. And yet, our lives are much more like water, like the ocean, and yet we live thinking that like we are on these islands of consciousness in the ocean, but I think we forget, and you know traveling is so good for this, meditation is so good for this. Um, that's like uh, we're not in control as much as we think. and so when the body starts deteriorating actually the word that for aging Norman Feldman talked about this last year That you know the word for aging in Pali is decrepitude <laughs> which I really love you know now when you write a popular book you say oh aging mm-hmm. but actually the word is decrepitude and when your body starts falling apart and you don't have to be old for this to happen um Although Ajahn Shah, the Thai forest teacher, he says that, you know, like young people don't get impermanence, but like old people, you don't have to teach them any philosophy. <laughs> and when your body starts falling apart, I think one of the issues that really shows up is control. And, you know, we don't have control. I see this so much in the yoga world, more than in the Buddhist world, because in the yoga world, you know, so many people are a little bit obsessed with their body and uh, with controlling their body, and uh, then you know, suddenly they have cancer. Like what? I mean, I, you know, I, I go to the urban herbivore every day and drink my wheatgrass, and I'm vegan, you know, and and um, and I, how how did this happen to me? And it's like, oh yeah, conditions, you know and um, we want that control and I'd say that actually we don't want control we just want to keep our viewpoint <laughs> so strange yeah. our view of ourself, our self image And yet, life doesn't work like that. Um. Yeah. I just have a question about that. Um, can you speak to your own experience of letting go of viewpoints? Because I would imagine you can maybe, for a split second, let go of something. And then you automatically default back to it. And then let go again. And then fall back. Is there a point where you permanently let go of something, or just potentially? <sighs> <because everything? laughs> well, I mean, I think we all have this fantasy that we can totally let go of something. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that lover, I never think about her, mm-hmm. and then you go to bed at night and like you dream about her every two months. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's more realizing that you actually don't let go of anything because it never belonged to you in the first place so symptoms that and we talked about this a lot today but you know symptoms that arise uh, you don't really have to let go of your thoughts about them if you just stay with your breathing and let them be there they'll let go of themselves they liberate themselves Mm -hmm. a woman today on her way to the meditation session left her pager on the subway and she came in and she was a bit distressed and then after the first meditation session she came up to me and she said I just realized my pager liberated itself (laughs) (laughs) and the first thought I had was imagine if all the blackberries liberated themselves today Um, all the people with meaningless jobs liberated themselves today (laughs) Um, so yeah you don't have to let go it's overrated really I mean so it's not so much that you're letting go of a view for example or letting go of a perspective you have it's just when you see it as a perspective you're not as invested in it and then it's one perspective among many And the first thing that happens relationally when you can do that is you can listen. Like I think about this just in terms of political activism. And you know the people who get things done have really good listening skills. Because they can tolerate other viewpoints and can dialogue with them. And yet we can also uh, appear to have good politics. And really be angry. And uh, in our anger be blinded by our contraction around our viewpoint. And then we can't listen. And then it's really hard to dialogue and to get somewhere. Except by force. Um, And so the same is true with your symptoms. Whatever they are. Uh, You don't have to let go of them. Um, Just make space. And they'll take care of themselves. It's so strange. And in a way, letting go is kind of controlling, right? It's like, I'm going to let go of that forever. <laughs> like, oh yeah? <laughs> Just try. <laughs> yeah. So letting go of you. Yeah. yeah. So, like with the example of the yogis or whatever who, who do have this image of over there, through practice or their body or something, and yeah. they do get some symptom or whatever yeah. um, how do they how do you deal with that I, I don't know, I don't know them that well but I, you know, you know it's mid-November and last year a year ago mid-November I was uh, a husband, a father in a nuclear family and it's a year later and I'm not a husband in a nuclear family and I think so much of the suffering that I went through you know Changing that role was not, you know, missing a room I slept in or a house I went to, really. It was actually that the story that I told myself about myself came to an end. And when I really went into the sadness and the um, discontent about that process, I was seeing every day that actually what came to an end in some way at bottom was just an expectation and an image and a story and it was changing and then to see in all of our relationships that it's always changing our our relationships are not linear nothing is and so our stories can't ever really match up to what's happening and so when we can let go of those stories, we're so much more in tune with one another. And, um, and then there's commitment. Otherwise, we're just committed to a fantasy. Yeah. And they're kind of addictive. Yeah. Okay. So let's finish chanting.